you're in a medical unit, but you still have to be a competent soldier. Because in a large-scale combat operation, if you cannot shoot, move, and communicate, you're not going to survive on the battlefield. Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a first-hand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. On this episode of War Docs, we speak with Army Brigadier General Jennifer A. Marist-Host. She's an emergency medicine physician who currently serves in the position of Deputy Commanding General Professional Services of the 807th Medical Command Deployment Support. Dr. Marist-Host provides stories and lessons learned from her deployments in both Afghanistan and Iraq as a clinician and strategic military medical leader. She talks about the critical role the reserves play in supporting the medical missions of the armed forces and how the focus is on preparing medical professionals for large-scale combat operations in the future. She also provides many leadership lessons and shares advice for those who are considering or are in the early stages of their military medical careers. Find out more about Brigadier General Marist Host and our previous guests on our website, warboxpodcast.com. I'm your host, retired Army urologist Doug Soderdahl, and I'm joined today by my co-host, retired Army Major General Jeff Clark, a family medicine physician and president of the Wardocs Board of Directors. Today, we're privileged to welcome Army Brigadier General Jennifer A. Marist Host to Wardocs. Ma'am, thanks for joining us today. Hey, thank you for having me. You were born in Grenada and then moved to New York City. Could you tell us a little bit about your early years and how that influenced you to become a physician and to join our military? Early years growing up in Grenada, I will tell you that that was the most carefree life ever. I loved being outside and playing. Uh, I was very active in the Brownie Scouts and so did a lot of community service and service with the church. And uh, the community and the church was basically where I grew up. I loved the older people. I, I just loved talking with them. They had so much interesting stories. I think I was always interested in medicine. When I was about eight or nine years old, I used to go to the mortuary. There's a local mortuary not too far from my school. So now in Grenada, you would go home for lunch. And I used to leave home early, walk back down to school. And I would go to the mortuary and, and hang out. And the mortuary owner was a friend of the family. So he didn't kick me out, right? And he would explain things to me and show me, okay, well, this person died of this and this person died of this. And so I was very, very curious as to what happened to them and, and how did it happen? And so I think that's where my interest in medicine started. And then I moved to New York and I just kind of continued with schooling. I loved biology. I loved chemistry and just continued on that path. Originally, I was really going to do my PhD in biology. And at the last moment, I decided I'm going to go to med school instead, right? I felt like I could have more of a control of my life as opposed to having to depend on grants to do research, though I love doing research, but 
it was more of a control piece for me that I can control my destiny by doing medicine. Joining the military, I, I must say that, that that was not a huge thought out decision. I literally graduated from med school and I was driving down Route 1 in New Jersey and there was that sign and it said, be all you can be. And I looked at it and I literally, I thought, oh, that looks interesting. I wonder what that is. And so I went to the place. Now I know that that was a recruiting station, right? Because back then I knew nothing of the military. I had no idea about Army and Navy and Air Force. I didn't know. And I walked in the door and I looked at the guy who was dressed in his class A uniform, right? And the full regalia on. And I looked at him and I said, what do you guys do here? And he just looked at me and clearly he deemed that I had no knowledge of the military and I was probably in the wrong place. And he looked at me and he said, we don't have anything here for you. And I said, okay, right? I didn't know what it was about in the first place. So as I was about to leave, he said, what do you do? And I said, oh, I'm a doctor. And he said, sit down, have some water. <laughs> so this is literally how I ended up in the military. I went home and, you know, he talked to me some about army medicine and then handed me off to an AMED recruiter. And I went home and I, over dinner, I told my husband, we're just talking. And I told my husband, oh, I joined the army today. I met with this person and, and he just looked at me like, oh my gosh. <laughs> and over the years, he's been my biggest supporter, just full support. And this is truly how I end up in the military. I tell people there was no MDMP process going on here, right? I did not truly think it out. I didn't know anything about it really, but I love the people. I love what I do. And here I am. So you finished medical school, you join. Where did you do your emergency medicine residency training? And was that in the military or was that in the civilian sector? I did my emergency medicine training in the civilian sector. I trained at St. Luke's Roosevelt in Manhattan, now known as Mount Sinai, Morningside and Mount Sinai West. And while I was still in residency, I was just starting out my military career. So take us through those first couple of assignments in the military. Did you feel like you were prepared to do what they were asking you to do? And were there any leadership lessons that you learned early on in Army medicine? So first couple assignments, I was assigned to what's known as APMC. So that is the AMED Professional Management Command right here at uh, Fort Gillum, Georgia. And there I literally did doing profiles for people who had some illness, some sickness, and some couldn't deploy. And so the things that I did there were profiling. We did some clearances for people to either go on deployments or not, just getting soldiers who were also in the AMED getting them accustomed to being in the army. So they were just learning army things. They still do that today where they're doing the soldier focused readiness and just getting them a cat card, getting them uniforms, getting them how to sign in into, into our emails. And, and so that was my first set of assignments. 
I'll tell you there, I've gained some lifelong friends because it was very exciting to go to Battle Assembly every month and catch up with docs that you haven't seen throughout the month. And it was just a, a really good time to learn Army. And then I was assigned to the 3297, which is also at Fort Gillum. And I started doing more things of courses in learning documentation within the Army and some of their systems. Leadership lessons learned early in uh, my career is that building relationships. Building relationships helps you to get to, helps you to get to yes, helps you to get things that you do not have either tasking authority on, but because you have relations that you're able to influence and get to bottom line, get to yes, to get things done. Just follow on. Share your experiences when you served with the 452nd Hospital in Afghanistan. That was December of 03 to into the spring of 04. That was very early, very early in OEF. Can you talk a little bit about your experiences? I had a great experience with the 452nd in Afghanistan. Those were the early days of where things were a lot more dear. It was not even named. The hospital was not even named. Now, it previously, it was Joint Craig Hospital. But back then, it didn't even have a name to it. It was just 452nd Hospital. And every unit came in that that name changed over. I was an energetic young officer, three years out of my residency. And I was all about the trauma care. And so there was a lot of trauma there. The early years of the war was, as I said, was very austere. And practicing my craft in that environment was, was an amazing thing to, to see. It made me a, a better physician. Seeing and treating trauma that was much different than what you find on CONUS, right? At St. Luke's Roosevelt, you saw trauma. We had the gunshot wounds. We had the, the head injury. But what I experienced in Afghanistan, what's much more severe, right? Dealing with blast injury, macerated tissues. We've had patients that have had arms that were blown off and stuck in their armpits. You just don't see that type of injuries on the CONA side. And having the ability to treat patients with that type of injury and make a difference for most of them was very rewarding to me. Heart-wrenching when treating service members and their battle buddies it is so torn that they're just frozen in place. So the military, treating military working dogs, where the handlers find it so hard to let go of the dog, right? Uh, they're so tightly bound together that you can't tell if it's the dog bleeding or the handler that's bleeding. Other experiences, just having lots of casualties on very hard days. So when you start taking casualties and you're on in that ER, it, it could be tough physically and it could be tough mentally. And casualties always seem to happen when, when I was working. Back then, Brigadier General Lloyd Austin, now the Secretary of Defense, he would come in and visit soldiers. And one day he kind of stopped and he looked at me and he said, you're always here. And he said, how are you holding up? I said, I'm doing fine. 
you start to compartmentalize you as the person, as the physician versus taking on the level of destruction and, and, and trauma that you're seeing. Would you say that you felt prepared to, to do what you were doing and how different was the environment in Afghanistan versus what you were used to working in, in New York, where you could get any lab, any x-ray, any technologies right there. How was that for you? So I would say your training as an ER physician, the training that I received throughout my residence did prepare me because like I said, I trained in Saint, at St. Luke's Roosevelt. There was a lot of trauma there. But the level of trauma that I was seeing in Afghanistan was much greater than what uh, I saw at St. Luke's. But the basics of how you treat was there. So yes, I did feel prepared. We were able to get labs, may not be all the labs that you wanted to get, but it was sufficient in order to treat, make diagnostic decisions, make decisions in, in general to get the patient to the next level of care and to get them stable. So your next assignment following the 452nd was command surgeon for Task Force Victory in Afghanistan. What was the most challenging experience from that role and how did you handle it? I, I used to say that that was the sexiest job in Afghanistan, right? Task Force Victory was with the civil affairs and we would go out and treat people in the local population, and all while gaining some intelligence and so forth. My most challenging thing during that time frame was the fact that I was a captain. I had the medical knowledge to diagnose and treat, the knowledge to make advanced decisions, but not the rank to influence, nor was I the commander. Command surgeons doesn't mean that you command and most confused the term and its duties. And so I had a lieutenant colonel that was part of our team, and he had a nodule on his neck. And he told me, he says, hey, doc, take a look at this. And he says, before we left for the deployment, my doctor put me on some antibiotics for it, but it's not getting any better. It didn't hurt, nothing, but it was just this nodule. And so... I took him in and I said, hey, let's take a look at this because I don't like what it looks like. And his CT scan showed speculating lesions. And I'm telling him, hey, you've got to go home. This is what this looks like. And he's, he's a lieutenant colonel. I'm a lowly captain. And he's like, no, I'm not going home. I was like, got to go home on this. But lowly captain sometimes does not trump lieutenant colonel. Though, again, you have the medical knowledge decision. So I had to really get to command level and say, this guy's got to go home, right? This is not going to be good. And so he finally went home. And I will tell you, about six months later, when I was back from the deployment, I got an email. And it was from him telling me, thanks for making me go home. You saved my life. He had cancer, lost piece of his tongue, but it was the challenge of command, the challenge of basically rank and having that knowledge base and diagnostic decision making and having the right people listen to you. So that, that, that was a challenging time. 
Then in, in 2006, you served as a battalion surgeon with 1st Battalion and 133rd Infantry in Iraq. I, first of all, what would tell us what your rank was when you had that position. And that's a different type of job than being in a hospital. Could you talk a little bit about that experience and some of the greatest memories from that time? So my rank when I was in uh, 2006, I was a lieutenant colonel, I believe. And it was a much different experience than Afghanistan. The being in Iraq was very restrictive, right? I was not with civil affairs. I was with the infantry. I felt in Iraq, I felt an inherent, there was something unsettling about where we were in al-Assad. The soldiers of the 133rd, they would go out on convoys and, and I would worry about them because one, I wasn't with them, right? They had combat medics, 68 whiskeys, but the ER doc to try to help them was, I was not going to be with them. Two, these guys, I saw them every day. They were like family and they would be up all night, kind of bug me about looking at wrestling with them. And, and they did the craziest things, right? Like they would throw knives at each other's feet and to see who can get the closest. And when I try to persuade them, hey, that's not a good idea, they would be like, but doc, I, I, I didn't hit his toes. I didn't hit his toes. I, w- I would worry about them. I guess, it, yeah, the experience was much different. And, and so just having them go out on the convoys and, and they would get injured. And sometimes the challenges that I had is a command sergeant majors. They tend to give advice to soldiers that don't make medical sense sometimes, I have to say. You're not a doctor. Stop giving these guys ridiculous medical advice. I started to see a lots of tinea curis. And so I started to pull the soldiers and say, okay, what's going on? What, what's changed? And I ended up finding out that the CSM was telling them because it was hot that they should not wear their underwear. And so I kind of said, okay, everyone, put your underwears back on. And and again, dealing with some people who try to get into that medical lane and, you know, the advice is not always that clear. I will tell you another challenge that I've had was really with the MC4 system, the documentation implementation that was going on during that time. Some boxes showed up to the battalion aid station and basically it said, set this up. Where you're located is is too dangerous for us to come. And you know, I look at this thing and I'm like, I'm not, I'm not an S6. I don't do IT. And I had no one else to that was doing IT. So it was up to us to kind of put it all together and, and make it work. And and I did that with the help of some of the other soldiers. But it was at that time that I said, What I'm not gonna have anyone else, no other doctor is going to deploy and have to figure out how to do this documentation. And so when I went back, when I redeployed, I went back to APMC and I started training physicians who were deploying how to document using this new system at the time, MC4. And every set of soldiers that were deploying, they would go down to APMC and I would have all the computers out and I would teach them, go through documentation on the MC4 system. So 
Those were some of our challenges in Iraq. So as an ER doc, what was your most memorable case that you were involved in, in either Afghanistan or Iraq, just during deployment? What was the one that would come to mind if you had a story about a case? What would you say? So the most memorable was a young girl that I saw that had third degree burns. Family arrived at the front gate with a child in their hand. And this, she probably no more than about eight years old. And she was burned about 90% of her body. I can distinctly recall all that she had left on her head was one ponytail. See, the neighbor, the neighbor had planted a bomb in their yard and there was nothing that could be done for her. She was still breathing, moaning in pain. The best that the anesthesiologist and I could have done was to treat her pain and try to keep her comfortable. And, and she eventually died. And the rest for the rest of the deployment, we never spoke of this case as though it was a way if I didn't speak about it, it wasn't at the forefront of my thoughts and my memories. And as a matter of fact, for the next 18 years, I thought of the case, but never truly spoke of it until I ran into that anesthesiologist and we looked at each other and both said, do you recall the little girl who was burned? He said, yes, he says, and I've never, I've thought about her, but I've never spoke of her. And so we both finally was able to expressing how we felt during that moment, that hopeless feeling that of being in this austere environment without the tools and the treatment capabilities. I don't think that all the advanced capabilities would have saved her, but it was still a helpless feeling that I failed her. And it was just good finally after about good 18 years that him and I were able to have a conversation about it. So for those of us who are involved in military medicine, that experience is not completely uncommon where you feel like you just can't do what you normally could do or you, you feel helpless in an austere environment. Looking back, how would you have done things differently? Would you want to have a way you could kind of express those thoughts with the unit and go through that while you're experiencing it or have some kind of professional program that deals with that kind of stress? How would you deal with that if it happened on the next deployment for a soldier in your command? I, I think having that decompression after the case is very helpful. And I will tell you, I do that today in my civilian job, because uh, I kind of learned from this case. In my civilian job, when we have a trauma case, we have a code. At the end of it, I pull my team together and I said, all right, guys, what went right? What, what didn't go so good? And how do you feel? And we will take a, a, a good 15 minutes and sit together and just talk about it. And I think that helps. And I think had I done that, had I known to do that back then, it would not have been 18 years of just kind of remembering it, but not wanting to bring it to the forefront of conversation. 
Thank you for sharing that story. And I think many of us have had things that we wish we had talked about more immediately following the event. But the fact that you took that lesson and you're applying it now, I think is is very good, right? That's that's what we all should do. That's part of being professional. So so thank you. Thank you for doing that. Could you tell us a little bit about your your current assignment? If you'd begin by telling us a little bit about the eight oh seventh. Eight oh seventh is a is a big complex unit. So many of our listeners may not be familiar with it. And I'll follow on to that if you'd also speak to what are some of the challenges our reserve component teammates may face that those on active duty uh, may not be aware of or may not appreciate. Current assignment as the Deputy Commanding General for Professional Services, I'm the principal advisor to the commander, to the commanding general on all medical matters. I'm the senior advisor for two medical brigades consisting of 55 units located in nine states and nearly 4,000 soldiers. These units, these soldiers, they provide the 10 medical functions, right, of general medicine, surgical, hospitalization, dental, ground evacuation, behavioral health, preventative medicine, medical logistics, and veterinary care. And they support mobilization, mobilized units in the civilian side, as well as abroad OCONUS. The 807th is one of the biggest medical commands. Uh, So there's three. You have the 807th that's from Midwest to West Coast. And then you have the third medical command, which is East Coast to the Midwest. And you have AR Medcom, who does the docs and nurses and so, and they're located in Florida. They don't have equipment and they fill the third and 807 for our physicians and some nurses for deployments and, and CONUS exercises. Challenge. So the challenge that the reserve component teammates face that our active component I wouldn't say that they don't appreciate, but they don't quite understand. And that is that the Army is our second job. We are held to the same standard of commanding, of meeting readiness, demands, meeting mission, all while having one third of the time to dedicate to this goal. They can't fathom how we do this, right? How do you have these, your civilian job, and you have this army job, and you're doing exactly the same type of command and meeting readiness and everything that they do, and that's their one full-time job. So when people say that we're twice the citizen as reserve soldiers, that's what it is. We're, We're literally doing two jobs and doing one of them with very limited time. So let's let's explore that a little bit. How how does the Compo three measure clinical readiness for deployment for the physicians and healthcare professionals that are working in a civilian environment that may have nothing to do with what they're going to see in deployment? How do you know if they're ready, and how do you address that? So currently, I will tell you Compo three. The Army does not directly measure the clinical level, the clinical readiness. We rely on the credentialing and privileging 
the credentialing, which is done through APMC, that is the AMED Professional Management Command. And then your privileging authority is usually one of the MTFs, the Army Medical Treatment Facilities, that is in the area or so of where it is that you're going to deploy or they support that part of that theater. And so right now you rely on the reports from civilian clinical work because in order to get your intercredentialing brief, you have to provide from your civilian job a list of all the procedures and things that you've done. And from that, it's deemed, okay, this person is ready to and have the skill set and have the a clear medical license in order to deploy. What we're doing now, and it's, it's ramping up as we gear to large-scale combat operation, is that we are looking at what's called the Individual Critical Task List, the ICTLs, and each AOC, right, each area operational concentration has a task list. So ER docs have a task list. Urologists have a task list. Trauma surgeons have a task list. And all these things you now have to track and document in order to show that you are competent in that area and that you're ready for deployment. And so from a civilian standpoint, let's say I may work in an ER that does not do a lot of intubations or cricothyrotomies or central line. Now there's a venue that you are able to access through the military in order to brush up and get those skill sets done so that you can be competent in that. Because for large-scale combat operation, that's what you're going to need. You're going to need those trauma skill sets. And we're starting to develop for the reserve side, civilian-military partnerships. The active component already has that. And so that is the next thing that I'm working on for the 807 is developing these civilian military partnerships where for someone doing their annual training, they can go into a hospital, a trauma hospital, such as like Grady or Cooper in New Jersey, and, and do get, get uh, the ability to become competent in these skills. I am familiar with ICTLs. And also, I'll just tip my hat to our reserve component. Doug and I were both on active duty. And exactly as you said, our reserve component teammates have two full-time jobs and we come together as one team. So I appreciate you doing that and for sharing how our reserve component medics are maintaining their ICTLs. I think you also served as a senior trainer for Global Medicine Exercise 2023. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what that event included? Yes. So Global Medic is an exercise that falls under CSTX. Uh, and so Global Medic is a, a premier medical exercise. It has a full spectrum training event that's simulating. Right now, we're doing more simulation of large-scale combat operations and exposing the training audience to tough, realistic training that's executed safely. 
So Global Medic, the training units are multi-compo, so compo one, two, and three, and multi-service. So we train with Army, Air Force, Navy as well. And sometimes we have multi-allied exercises and, and forces. You have Australian fo- forces, Canadian forces. And this last global medic that I was the senior trainer for, we had some Kuwaiti physicians who also joined us. Medical forces are executing their medals, right? Their mission, mission essential task list. And they, and the 10 medical functions and we utilize scripted scenarios designed to uh, generate the doctrinal response. So you have these different scripts that will get a unit to exercise these mission essential tasks. So you put them in a scenario and have them execute what is doctrinally necessary for them to complete the task and show that they're competent in these different tasks, because that's what it's going to take for the next level of warfight. So was there anything in particular in the after-action reviews from this exercise that you said, boy, we need to work on this and focus on this to be better prepared for the possible ground combat operation that could be in the near future? Our focus right now is pushing more towards that large-scale combat operation. And we've noticed that we need to take soldiers back to the basics, right? We need to take them back to shoot, move, communicate, decontaminate, and treat on the medical side. If we have soldiers that are not competent in the soldiering part, because I say they're in a medical unit, and and that's the thing that I like to look at, you're in a medical unit, but you still have to be a competent soldier. Because in a large-scale combat operation, if you cannot shoot, move, and communicate, you're not going to survive on the battlefield. And so then the knowledge and skill that you have as a physician is going to be lost, and you're not going to be able to render aid and treatment to people who are in need if you cannot survive on the battlefield. And so just having people become competent, I tell people, I, I am a soldier who happened to be in a medical unit. I'm, I'm not just a medical person, right? I'm, I'm not just in a medical unit. You're a soldier first, and you happen to be in a medical unit. And, and so we have to get back to the basics of, of teaching our medical professional how to survive on the battlefield by having them develop those individual soldier skills and become very competent with those soldier skills. What would you share with a young civilian physician who's considering joining uh, military medicine? I would share that that would be the best decision for them to make. It is nothing like being part of this professional organization. You are respected by others You are part of a cohesive team. You're working with the best people. They're in the discipline environment and everyone's rowing towards a common goal. So yes, I I talk to all the people that I encounter and it, it is an awesome organization to be a part of. And as I said, you just work with the best people and a common goal 
and striving for that. So that that's what I would tell them. I'll ask a follow-on, if I may. So what would you share with a young military medicine service member, officer or enlisted, reserve component, active component, that's trying to decide whether or not to stay in? So trying to decide whether or not to stay in. I would tell you I've never met someone, and I, I see patients all day, and I see a lot of veterans. I, I've never met someone to have told me that getting out was the best thing they've done. I always hear, I should have stayed in. They always have that level of regret of getting out. Your current struggles for what's the reason you're trying, you want to get out? Whatever the current struggle is or whatever the competing responsibilities are today, and it may be overwhelming for you today, but getting out is not the answer. So if you're active component and you want something different, I, I would say that we need to have a better tie-in with the active component to transfer these folks, if they want to get out of active component, transfer them to the reserves. Don't let their years go to waste that they were in the active component. Carry that on and being in the reserves. But let us help you. If you're in the reserves and you want to get out, what's the reason? What's the challenge? Let us help you make this a wonderful organization called the United States Army, work to your advantage. Let us help you try to navigate whatever struggles it is that you're having that seems to be overwhelming at this time. But don't make it a decision where you get out and then you regret it later on. You mentioned earlier that an important leadership lesson that you learned was cultivating those relationships. So even though the rank structure was not equal. You had that influence that you could provide that medical expertise. You've been through a lot of important assignments and different experiences. When you mentor company grade or junior enlisted, what is a, a leadership pr principle that you really want to stress to them? I would say that it is being authentic. Be your authentic self. Know who you are and hold those standards. I think that's important. So as you are your authentic self, you're caring about people, you're caring about the mission, you're being kind, you're being approachable, you are giving of yourself, right? Selfless service. And, and you're holding to the standard of what the army says is the standard. And you're not letting that go to the wayside. So to me, it's always having that military bearing that you also continue to retain. And, and how you are as a person speaks volume and ties into how you build and keep relationships. So I want to expand on that a little bit. When the history books are written 100, 150 years from now, how would you want your legacy, your history in military medicine to be remembered as? Oh boy. I, I would say that she cared for her fellow soldiers, drive to change the culture of army medicine, moving forward army medicine modernization to meet the demands of LISCO. Because if we don't train our soldiers today, the first time that they are placed into a stressful situation 
in combat, the first time that they are asked to work for how many hours and see the total number of casualties that they will have to see should not be the first time that it's done on the battlefield. So I I think I would want history to remember that tried to train soldiers to meet the demands that they're going to have to face so that they can continue to conserve the fighting strength. Well, we've been speaking with Brigadier General Jennifer A. Marist, host on Wardock's podcast. Ma'am, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us. And thank you for your service to this nation. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Wardock's. We sure hope you enjoyed it. Wardock's is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts and rate and review this episode and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on wardocspodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardocs has you covered. Spread the word.